0: Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at (music) upmcpinnacle.com.
1: Welcome to Smart Talk, I'm Scott Lamar. During a November meeting of the Harrisburg School District Board, teachers from the district asked the board for help dealing with increasing violence in the classroom. The teachers' union says the situation's gotten so bad in some classrooms, especially in the elementary school grades, that teachers are leaving the district. We spoke with Harrisburg Education Association President Jody Barksdale late last week. Jody Barksdale, welcome to Smart Talk. Thank you. One of the uh, reports that uh, we've gotten is that uh, there have been anywhere, anywhere between 45 and 50, maybe even just a few more than 50, that have left the district since August, since school started. And one of the reasons that uh, they cite is bad behavior by students in the classroom. Tell me about that.
2: Uh, yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of frustration comes from the lack of support, meaning when we have difficult behaviors uh, you know showing themselves in the classroom and we go to say hey you know this child's doing these things what can I do I need help you know the things that I've learned and used in the past aren't working so we need more and we feel as though you know it's not necessarily our principal's fault I just think that it's lack of education and lack of knowledge on everyone's part right you know I've been teaching in the district for 19 years and Nine of those years, I taught alternative ed, so I do have a really good handle of classroom management, and I have a lot of tools, but some of these newer teachers coming right out of college, they don't have that experience, and some of our kids, you know, just are are showing some behaviors that are not necessarily bad, so to speak. It's a cry for help, because they're physically acting out, and they're hurting other children. Some of the students are hurting teachers, and... You know, as an adult, you want to do everything that you can to make sure that that everyone's safe, not just yourself, but all the other students in your classroom, because you're responsible for every single child in that room. So whenever you have a child that's aggressively acting out, throwing chairs, kicking, hitting, punching, you know, other children and or the teacher, what do you do? You know, you have to you have to get all the kids out of the classroom, make sure that they're safe, you know, and all these things take away from the academic setting, the educational piece. And everybody knows that Harrisburg is under a chief recovery officer's plan, um, and we have to to meet certain academic standards to get off of that plan. So when we have these difficult behaviors occurring in the classroom, it takes the teacher's attention away from educating the kids and directing it more towards managing the negative behaviors. Um, Typical behaviors, you know, getting out of your seat, talking, things like that, that's not a big deal. We're really concerned about the children that are displaying these violent anger you know, behaviors like throwing desks, throwing chairs, um, kidding, kicking teachers, kicking students. You know, it, it's just to the point where we feel that these kids are crying out for help. These are not typical behaviors that you see in 5 to 10-year-olds. To, to you know, you, you don't see those behaviors normally uh, in that age range. And whenever we do see them, we see that as, you know, as an educator, we see that as a cry for help. And... I don't have any training in trauma or um, mental illness or, or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm not a doctor. Not, none of us are trying to say that they're, these children have mental illnesses, but something is wrong, that they're acting in this manner, and just a typical redirection or a detention isn't, isn't helping You know, curb the behavior. So we actually went to the school board January 2017 and, and addressed this issue then, um, I have been working with the school district and we've had meetings to talk about it. And yes, we've done some talking, but I think that now that the, the behaviors have escalated into violence, we have to stop talking. We have to start acting. And that's pretty much what the board, the, the message was at the school board is, you know, things are getting out of control. These, these young babies shouldn't be behaving this way. We see this as a cry for help. What can we do? How can the district and the school board train the teachers in trauma, mental illness, or the signs, de-escalating behaviors, things like that, that we can be, you know, the ones on the front line, you know, that are working with these children every day could have some type of help on how to deal with this type of behavior. And then secondly, how can we get outside agencies maybe, I don't know, or hire master's level therapists to do some kind of, you know, therapy to, to, help kids learn how to cope with with anger management you know i don't know i'm not i don't have all the answers but those are some of the suggestions that i think that we need to look into i mean i've done some research on you know there was one called the damaged mind or whatever well if someone is struggling mentally whether it be trauma mental illness whatever it's very difficult to learn so you have to address those things first so the kids can learn well ultimately isn't that what a school district is for is to teach those kids how to
1: learn that's my job. You may have some people listening to this who would ask, "Should those students, even if there is a mental illness, if there is trauma in their background, should they be in a regular classroom with other students
2: um, Again, I'm not a doctor i can't I can't answer that. Um, I do believe in mainstreaming children. I do think that people with <clears throat> other disabilities and things, I think that absolutely some of them can strive in a regular ed setting um. From my experience as an alternative ed stu- uh, teacher for nine years in the Harrisburg School District, I've seen a lot of students that struggled behaviorally totally succeed in the alternative ed setting. And actually, they didn't want to leave whenever they were there. They're like, I haven't experienced this much success in school and I really like it here. And they didn't want to leave whenever because they were able to work their way through the program, so to speak, and be able to earn going back to their home school, back into the regular mainstream environment in the school district. And a lot of the kids that, that had some trouble past and had some difficult behaviors that got them put into our classrooms um, actually experienced success and, and they didn't want to leave once they met the level to be able to transition back. And some of them would start acting out on purpose to stay there. So the program that we had in the school district in the past, when where the Harrisburg school district um, teamed up with Cornell Abraxis, um, in my personal opinion, I thought it was extremely successful because we had our Harrisburg City School District teachers teaching our city students, and we know them, we know the community, we know the kids. And Abraxis, they had, you know, they had their specialty in dealing with behaviors and, you know, working through. What
1: is Braxis just for some background? Cornell
2: Abraxis. Um, It's like a behavior modification company, Mm -hmm. Um, and they would literally, I had a class of 15 students. I was the teacher. It was exactly the same type of classroom that I currently am in. The only difference is, is I had, at the time, I was called a behavior specialist that was an employee of Cornell Abraxas in my classroom. Every class had one. And if there was a behavior concern, and I addressed it, and it got to the point where it was taking away too much educational time for me to address it, then my behavior specialist would say, come on, let's go out in the hallway. And they would figure out what the problem was. They would talk about it. They would process through it if it was because they had something traumatic happen to them in the morning before they came to school and they were just set off in a bad mood. They were able to actually talk to that child and figure out what's wrong and give them suggestions on how they can fix it or work through it. And I could still stay in my classroom and teach the other 14 kids. I mean, test scores definitely increased. So in that environment, and there was no limit on how many kids could come to our school. You know if if we if we exceeded our 15 and we had more kids coming in, we would just open a new classroom. And it, it just, in my opinion, was successful. I've actually ran into some of those kids that are now adults in the community and they loved it and they said that they wished that it was there because now i wish that my kids had that experience to go to so what um, happened to it unfortunately we had to get rid of it due to funding um 11 years ago something we were under some kind of alternative umbrella i'm i'm not sure about the funding but i just know it was a a funding thing um And I don't know if it was a grant or whatever, but whatever it was, it ran out
1: and it was no longer there. So let's get back to the current situation. And as we said, uh, about four dozen teachers that have left. I mean, are these young teachers for the most part or uh, experienced teachers? And and what do they say? It's both. Um, Unfortunately, over the last
2: I don't know, several years, we've lost a large number of veteran teachers to the surrounding districts because of the exact same thing. You know, they feel that they weren't appreciated. They feel that they didn't, no matter what they did, it wasn't good enough. Um, They also... Good enough for who? Anybody. I mean, some principals give us a lot of, you know, good jobs, I appreciate you, things like that. But typically, you know... We get we get the we get the bashing of all the negativity that's going on in Harrisburg typically comes down to the teachers and the kids. I mean, you know, that's that's the stuff that that you hear. And um, it's just we care. The people that are here, we care about these kids and we want to see them get the supports and the help that they need. And when we see that there is a need. And we bring it to the attention of the people that have the power to do something, nothing changes. That's what's frustrating. And I literally had a teacher who emailed me and said, I love working in the city. I love these kids. They're great people to be around. However, I'm at a crossroads. I'm in an abusive relationship with my career. And I said, wow, what do you mean by abusive relationship? And this teacher said... I love my job. I love coming to school every day. I I do it for these kids. But whenever I see that there's something wrong and I go and ask for help or I ask what can we do or what assistance can be given to these kids and you get told I'll look into it or I'll get back to you or there's really nothing that we can do, it gets to the point where you feel like you're getting beat up every day when you're asking for help is what she said. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Like I never considered that. But that's what people mean by lack of support. You see a need. You don't really know how to fix it. So when you go to the people above you that should be your resources and they don't know how to get that help or that need fixed, it, it, it's frustrating. Because we see the need. We see the hurt. We see the pain in these kids. And we don't know how to fix it. it. It gets very, very frustrating. And that's what we mean by lack of support that teachers are leaving because of lack of support. And they don't feel appreciated.
1: Were there teachers or are there teachers that actually feared for their safety? Nobody ever came out and told me that, no. No. But there were teachers who were attacked. I mean, I heard a story about uh, a youngster, and I mean like a five-year-old, basically uh, cussing out a a teacher. Yes, that happens, unfortunately. Where do kids pick that up? I think I know the answer to that, but... (laughs) I'm not at
2: liberty to say that. I don't know. Obviously, they're seeing things or hearing things that they probably shouldn't be at that age. But again, you know, everybody has difficulties in life, you know, and there's hardships. And we understand that everybody has a different situation when it comes to home, which is why the teachers want to help. What can we do? Train us to help these kids. Bring in outside agencies or hire master-level therapists to be able to counsel these kids and teach them coping skills. And I mean, whatever, you know, PTSD is a is a rough thing to get through, and um, I've never personally experienced it. Thank God, but I do have several uh, family and friends that were in the service, and a lot of them have PTSD. And you know, as adults, we struggle with it. Could you imagine, you know, a five, six, seven year old? How would how would they be able to deal with that? They don't even know how to ask for help. And we feel as though these behaviors is a way for them to cry out for help. So we would like the community, the teachers and the school district to come together and figure out what we can do to help these kids. That's what we
1: want. The ultimate job is to provide an education for these young people so that uh, they will be able to go out into the world and uh, be a success. That almost seems like it's secondary. If, if you can't, I mean, I know ultimately that's the goal, but it seems like it would be almost secondary to trying to get these behaviors under control so that there is a good learning environment
2: ultimately yeah i mean that's 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 teachers aren't just educators you know we we teach the whole child not just we don't just go to school and teach you know we're we're second parents and we're guidance counselors and we're you know we're protectors, we're educators, we're social workers, we're, we're a little bit of everybody. And that's why it's important that all of those entities get together and try to figure out what's going on with with these children, you know, the, that small group of children. You know, we have these types of, of children in, that display these types of, you know, really difficult behaviors. But at the same time, we do have a lot of students in this school district that are doing great. They come to school to learn. They want to be successful. Um, it's just unfortunate that, you know, they don't get enough credit. You know, those those kids that come and do really well, they don't get enough credit because we have some of those really, you know, severe behaviors. And um, it's not that anybody wants to, to take anything away from those kids and those schools that are doing really well, because trust me, there are a lot of great teachers teaching a lot of great students learning people are doing you know excellent under under the circumstances it's it's not that we want to point fingers or place blame on anybody it's we see that there's a problem we are professionals and we see that some of our younger kiddos are really acting out in a way that we haven't seen you know prior to the last couple years so that to us is a red flag like something's going on with these children what can we do to help them You know, and that's all that this whole thing is about, is about students being able to go to school and learn and teachers being able to go to work and teach. Teachers want to teach and kids want to learn, but sometimes when you have these difficult behaviors going on in your classroom, it's hard for me to, you know, for teachers to do their job when they have to deal with this behavior and keep everyone else safe. And it's difficult for those children who actually, you know, are meeting the expectations and doing what they're supposed to do, you know. We have um, the the slogan, catchphrase is "Ready, responsible, respectful." You know, that's that's our, that's our mission. Our focus is to to have every child be ready, responsible, respectful in the classroom, in the hallway, in the bathroom, in the cafeteria, on the bus. So hopefully, that will overflow into their Daily lives in the community, right? We want them to be upstanding citizens, so that's what we're trying to implement and enforce in our district. And you know, I I I think that everything that we're doing is great, but we do have some of those kids that are not being ready, responsible, and respectful, and they're taking it to the extreme. How can we How can we get those kids, you know, to turn the corner and become ready, responsible, and respectful? So everyone in the district can learn, not just you know a percentage. That that small percent that are that are behaving this way is affecting the large percent that's I mean, imagine all the all the kids that are doing really well. Imagine if those four or five kids in each class now became ready, responsible, respectful. Imagine how much success the the school district could have if we were able to help those four or five kids in
1: each class that are struggling.
2: It would be amazing.
1: Jody Barksdale, thank you very much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Harrisburg Education Association President Jody Barksdale speaking with us in the WITF studios last week. She's in class today is the reason we're not speaking to her live. Coming up, we're going to be speaking with uh, Harrisburg District Superintendent Sybil Knight-Burney and Jamie Foster, Chief Academic Officer with the Harrisburg School District. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
0: Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome
1: back to Smart Talk. Uh, During this portion of the program, we're talking about uh, some reports of violence in the classrooms of Harrisburg School District, especially in the the younger grades, the earlier grades, I should say, elementary school grades. You got to hear from uh, the head of the teachers union, Jody Barksdale. And now joining us in the studio is Harrisburg District Superintendent, Dr. Sybil Knight-Burney. Dr. Knight-Burney, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you, Scott.
1: Also with us today is Jamie Foster, who is chief academic officer. Ms. Foster, welcome to the show. Good morning, Scott. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1 800 729 7532 or send an email to smarttalk at org. So, Dr. Knight burning let me start with you. In your observations, what you've heard, what is happening in the classrooms? Well, Scott,
3: um, as you know, our classrooms are just a mirror. Of our community. And with that being said, whatever happens in a community also comes into the doors of our schools. So one of the things that we have recognized nationally is that um, as we look at the school, you know, traditionally schools have been able to be the center of the community, but now they're almost like an extension of the home. So we are providing more and more services. You know, Harrisburg is one of many districts that is a full Title I district. So we have 100% free breakfast and lunch for our students. And as we look at that, we also have to look at all of the other factors that that go into making that a reality. So as we look at our scene of mental health services, we are looking across nationally. I am part of a national association of superintendents, and currently we have a cohort of superintendents within that group called the Community of Practice, and we get together, and we just came back from Atlanta on Friday, Thursday to Friday, um, talking about various social factors that impact the learning environment, meaning schools, and what we have to do. And one of the superintendents, um, one from Schenectady, talked about his trauma-sensitive schools. And we are also talking about that here. Our Capital Area Intermediate Unit, um, the CAIU, has also convened superintendents together. And we have been talking about this very same thing. Because it's not just Harrisburg. This is not unique to Harrisburg. Um, other superintendents here regionally, locally, um, have had deep conversation about it. And as I look, even this month's Educational Leadership, which is an international magazine, also features mental health in schools with the main focus of being trauma and other things that happen as we talk about the adverse kind of childhood experiences that are are, are so prevalent now, today, um, we are recognizing a need within our schools
1: to have to address this.
3: And Can I interrupt you for just sure. one second?
1: Because you said that it's not unique to Harrisburg, and I think that across the country, you, I mean, you're probably right that there are a lot of school districts that are are dealing with this kind of situation, violence in the classroom, but... It it may be unique to this region, maybe even some other cities in Pennsylvania, but those other regional districts that you mentioned don't have 40 to 50 teachers leaving because of violence in the classroom.
3: Well, I think maybe I need to correct that, too. And we don't have 40 or 50 teachers leaving because of violence in the classroom. That's what the unions say. Unfortunately, they've been misinformed. As we look at our data, um, our top reasons that teachers are leaving is because of retirement. You know, we have those teachers who've been teaching um, since the 70s; it's they've been retiring. We have we've had some teachers who are relocating because their spouse is moving. We've had terminations, and we've had some other reasons like going to a school district that's closer to my home. I don't know if you recognize it or not, but we have many teachers who do not live in the city of Hattersburg or in county, Many of them live, you know, to an hour, an hour and a half to two hour commute. So sometimes when you find a school district closer to your home,
1: you want to move to that. But why would the union say that we, you know, since August, we've had 45 to 50, maybe even 53 teachers leave due to the violence in the classroom?
3: I don't know why they would say that. Well, I mean, are you saying they're being untruthful? I'm saying that I just gave you the top reasons, and the top reasons are retirements, terminations, relocation, and just some other personal reasons. But the majority of them
1: are retirements, terminations, and relocation. But you don't deny that there is violence and misbehavior in the classrooms?
3: I would say that there is some misbehaviors in the classroom. And there are are a plethora, a a wide range of variations of those behaviors. And sometimes the interpretation of what's violent or not violent is subject to what the current situation was or what happened at that time. So to say that there aren't, I would be lying. There are. But there's also a range of behaviors.
1: Well, I mean, there were reports of teachers saying of students throwing chairs, kicking teachers, scratching teachers, uh, that one incident of a five-year-old that, for lack of a better way to describe it, they described it as cussing out a teacher, Mm -hmm. uh, that... I mean, you don't deny that that, that happened.
3: No, I, I don't deny that that happens. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we have to look at, though, and, I, and Ms. still did mention it in her interview, and that was around education. The lack of education to try to um, approach these various issues and various behaviors that are happening because we have to know the root of them. And part of that comes from, you know, having a better understanding of where our students are coming from, having a better understanding of how do we provide the necessary support. And I do agree with Ms. Sparksdale that those are things that everyone needs to be, including myself, needs to be educated on more. We need to do more. And for that reason, we are working toward that. Now, you do know that we have a um, um, various agencies who do and are continuing to support us. In fact, the Dauphin County Mental Health System services have also been convening meetings with superintendents and with us in the school district. We have Presley Ridge that provides in-school therapeutic counseling. They also are situated in our Karen S. Steider Student and Family Community Health Center, which provides after-hours therapeutic counseling services for the whole family. Because we realize that even though a student gets the counseling, the therapeutic counseling, in school, we need to help the parents understand how they can still help the student when they come home. So... Those are some of the things. We've had trainings um, during the summer with our administrators from the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute trying to help us more. And we have have had more and more discussions. I think one of the problems is that this is such a, a new thing for us to see kindergartners and first graders at this level. Miss um, Foster and I actually went into a classroom about a week and a half ago to really observe that. And we've had some behaviors um, of a violent nature that have been mounting. But I think it's, it's, it's happened so fast. And it, it's been more and more students that we see that are coming in. And getting an understanding of this and wrapping around our hands around. Because one of the things you have to understand, too, we want everyone to be safe. Safety is first. But we also have to protect the rights of the child. And we can't just kick kids out of school anytime. We have to make sure that we are doing the proper things and we're taking the right course of action to ensure their rights as well. So... You know, we have to look at a real big picture. And, of course, we're trying to move as fast as we
1: can. Mm -hmm. Okay. I I just wanted to bring uh, Jamie Foster into the conversation. As the chief academic officer with the district, and one of the questions I asked Jody Barksdale was about uh, the education. I mean, Mm -hmm. as uh, Dr. uh, Knight-Bernie just mentioned, education Mm -hmm. is the ultimate goal. Absolutely. Uh, But when I asked uh, Ms. Barksdale about, uh, you know, when you have students misbehaving and you're concerned about violence in the classroom, mm-hmm. that it would appear that you have to get that under control mm-hmm. before those children can learn. Mm-hmm. Plus, the other students mm-hmm. in in the classroom as well. So, how do you do that? How do you make that? How do you do that balance? Well, one of the things that we know
4: about education, Scott, is that when I have a really strong, rigorous lesson and students are highly engaged, that typically behaviors, whether negative or poor, uh, they typically do not occur. So one of the things that we strive for with our curriculum in the school district is to ensure that it is highly rigorous But it it provides uh, a genuine amount of student engagement so that way students are so involved in whatever it is that they're learning for that core content or that elective area that I don't have time to misbehave. Uh, One of the things that we have instituted this school year are classroom management plans, and it's individual for each teacher because what may work for Dr. Knight, Bernie, may not work for Jamie Foster, may not work for Scott Lamar. So these are specific to each classroom so that as I get to know my children, we can speak to that around what works best for all kids in the room. You know, some kids, work, I'm able to just meet close to them in proximity. They immediately begin that, that misbehavior tones down. Some students, I have to give a tap on the shoulder. That might be a tier two, and I'm going to use this word, and I'll, bring it, I'll introduce it, intervention. Things that we do that redirects a child to be able to now get back on track and be involved in the class and, and do what they need to do in order to learn best for themselves. For some students, tap on the shoulder may not work. They may have to go to a buddy room so that way I'm able to now still maintain the safety and education of those other children and be able to still focus on whatever it is that that student needs. So we're very, very mindful that when we are speaking of education, that it's not necessarily sometimes because it's one of those uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg. It's not necessarily that behavior management comes first before classroom instruction or classroom instruction comes first before behavior management. Quite honestly, it's a holistic approach. I integrate purposefully and intentionally behavior management into my lesson. So that way I am anticipating the things that some of my students may do. Now, if I have a student, for example, who may genuinely throw chairs or things like that, which is an extremely isolated event and I want to stress that i can't stress that enough how isolated that that may be in our schools i don't want folks to think that our schools are so out of control that you've got kids just throwing stuff and throwing chairs and that's not managing a building if that happens then absolutely i may need to stop my lesson take care of the safety and soundness of my class as a whole remove them if i have to get that child taken care of and then move forward but the true goal Always, and as Miss Barksdale spoke to with our recovery plan, is to be able to meet the needs of children education-wise. We recognize that we strive to do that every day in Harrisburg. Have we met those needs yet for all of our children? We haven't. And the goal is to do that daily. And when we do that, a great deal of these behavior management issues tend to dissipate. Because if I'm a child in sixth grade and I realize I read on a third grade level, what's the best way for me to not engage? Misbehave. So I'll misbehave in the class just to get everybody else off task because I don't want to expose when we get ready to do read alouds that I can't read. And while that might seem like a very simple answer most often, that's the genuine truth Mm. with kiddos.
1: I want to bring in uh, Chanda Talene, who is a nationally certified school psychologist and educational consultant through the CAIU Supporting Pennsylvania's Behavior Initiative of of filling the uh, role of uh, district uh, director of multi-tiered systems of support. Uh, Chandra, that's that's a heck of a title you got. I mean, it's a long title there, but I want to tap the psychologist uh, part of that. I mean, From what I'm hearing, I just heard uh, 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 Dr. Knight-Burney say that, uh, you know, the studies have shown that uh, what happens in schools is a reflection of what's happening in the community. So what is happening? I mean, why are there kids from the ages of 5 to 10-year-olds who are acting and as both uh, Dr. Knight-Burney and uh, Jody Barksdale described, that uh, this is something that has really only happened here in the last couple of years? What's going on?
5: Well we have to remember that behavior is a form of communication and sometimes with our youngest students they might not have the vocabulary or the language to communicate with school staff about challenges that they're having so they may choose to communicate behaviorally. Some of the things that are different in our community you have to think about the fact that um, Harrisburg Public Schools we have the majority of our students are living um, have low SES. We have lots of students who are homeless and highly mobile.
1: Those low SES. In- low SES. What's, what's that?
5: Um, socioeconomic status. Okay. So we, right. have, we have families who are struggling financially. We have families that are struggling to find a place to live on a consistent basis. We also have more students um, living in trauma. Uh, I'm sure um, maybe Dr. Knight talked about the number of families we're getting from Puerto Rico who've um, survived through that hurricane. So we have lots of students who are dealing with a a lot of issues that that are getting in the way of them learning educationally. And unfortunately, sometimes these students are speaking out through behavior, and we as educators have to find ways to educate our students through their behavior, to give them new skills in order for them to be able to participate. Within our school setting and meet our expectations
1: mm. Dr. Knight Bernie, we only have a few minutes left. I want to thank all three of you for being with us today but I, I want to get to solutions what mm-hmm. all, is the solution to this problem uh, if there are more than if there is one more more than one solution for one thing, but the other question is I, you when know, I heard Jody Barksdale speaking, she said that there 're real criticism or complaint is they feel they're not getting support from maybe principals in some cases uh from the school board in other cases that, that when they are coming uh to the school board and saying we have a, a problem here they're being told okay we'll we'll you know we'll take a look at it and nothing gets done. I mean, it seems from just the hearing you today that you have a different point of view of what's actually happening in the classroom than what the, the the teachers do. So, number one, what is the solution? Number two, what does the the board do to support these teachers?
3: Now you understand that there is no one. Solution that fits there everything. Is. There never is. And I don't always know if we have the right answer right away. Um, when we look at some of the things that we've been doing in the Harrisburg School District, for instance, our cultural proficiency training, which, um, and Ms. Barksdale was a part of that during the summer, we had over six schools that were trained, um, and it's ongoing training about, you know, really understanding what is appropriate, what's been happening in our schools, and most importantly, how we interact with students and their families, and we increase the relationships. There has to be a level of trust. So when you even talk about the needs, what we need to be able to do is always have a very strong level of trust and relationships with our families, because mental health issues are very sensitive. This whole trauma thing is very sensitive, because you got to remember, Scott, now you're getting into my business you know, as we talk about that. And the one thing that, that, that parents, and I'm a parent, you're a parent, we're parents, we don't want to be seen as bad parents. So we don't always want to face up to some of the things. So that is another reason why there has to be the, the relationship building, the trust, and the education, because we have to have ownership with everybody on how do we wrap around our students. We've done the cultural proficiency training. We will continue that until we'll fully, um, all staff have that. We have our poverty level training experience so our teachers, our community can understand better, you know, what it's like in the day of a life, just a little snippet of, of, of being impoverished all of the time. So, That's another awareness kind of thing. And then we're looking at, and some of the studies are showing now, art, music, and physical activity. We reactivated our elementary music program last year, and one of the reasons being to make sure that we get our students into it. And now we have a waiting list. You know, more and more students are signing up. We're sending more instruments home. We have more um, community people even bringing in, donating instruments. And it's proven to be very, very successful.
1: What about support for the teachers, though? Uh,
4: When we talk support for teachers, Scott, one of the things that we have done uh, all school year long, we have four district-wide trainings uh, that I have the privilege of being able to work with educators within our academic services department to plan and to... uh, execute within our district, Uh, we have engaged teachers in high-impact teaching strategies. Uh, We have engaged teachers in positive behavior intervention strategies. We've engaged teachers in, as Dr. Knight spoke, to cultural proficiency training. Uh, We worked with teachers and with principals on how to engage in our processes for suspension, And if we necessarily need to, worst case scenario, expulsion of students, we actually have a process that has been in place now uh, within the district. This is the second school year that we've had it very strategic so that way teachers and parents – I'm sorry, teachers, parents – And administrators are aware of what types of infractions uh, do we look at in order for students to be able to uh, possibly be suspended for. And along with what other school districts are doing across the nation, the district has begun to limit the amount of numbers of days for suspension for students. So that way we don't allow for them to be suspended for so many days that when I come back to school, I'm so far behind. The best thing I'm going to do is get suspended again because I don't know where I'm at in school. So these are things that we're working on uh, with teachers. Uh, Dr. Knight meets with uh, teachers with a teacher advisory council monthly. Uh, The wonderful thing, and I'm not sure if Ms. Barksdale mentioned this or not, but every month the district administration and executive committee of the Harrisburg Education Association get together to discuss high-flying issues that HEA deems significant enough to bring to the district's attention. This occurs monthly, third Tuesdays of the month from 3 to 445, so that way we can discuss what's going on in the district that we need to cover.
3: I just wanted to add to going forward, January 20th, we will have Ms. Shawna King from Baltimore who's going to to train our 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 entire staff, um, whoever wants to come, on the science of the brain and the impact of trauma on the brain. We have a principal by the name of Mr. Christopher Gibbs, who is actually a trauma-informed classroom trainer, and he will follow up in various sessions, ongoing sessions, on the how-tos. What are some of the things that we can do immediately and long-range? And of course, Ms. Barksdale talked about the Mental Health Task Force and I, along with other teachers and other administrative staff, have already volunteered to be on that task force.
1: Well, I want to thank all three of you for being with us today. Harrisburg District Superintendent Dr. Sybil Knight-Burney, Jamie Foster is the Chief Academic Officer, and Chanda Talene, who is a nationally certified school psychologist and educational consultant through the CAIU Supporting Pennsylvania's Behavior Initiative. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much,
4: Scott. Thank
1: you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Harrisburg Giants joined the Eastern Negro League in 1922 when black athletes were not allowed to compete in Major League Baseball due to segregation. Professional baseball began to integrate in 1947 when Jackie Robinson made his debut with the Brooklyn Dodgers. The Harrisburg Giants continued through 1954 when they became the first Negro League team to integrate white players onto the team. Last year, a group of Messiah College film students produced there Were Giants, a documentary film about the Harrisburg baseball team. Joining us is the film's director, Scott Orris. Mr. Orris, welcome to the program.
6: Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here.
1: If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. And I should mention, before we go any further, because it's already aired once, but one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on the program to talk about the film is that it is airing on Television, right?
6: Yes, actually, it just aired at, at eight a.m. and it's going to air again at eleven a.m. on uh, Shorts TV. It's yeah. a cable channel. Um, if you get Direct TV or Google Fiber, AT and cable, I think there's another one like CenturyLink Prism. Um, you can you can get it or D, you know DVR it. You know, to, is there is, is there
1: a way to access it online?
6: Um, yes, actually, if you go on Direct website. If you ha- subscribe, if you uh, have the service, you can um, watch it on the internet. Yeah. So,
1: wanted to let everyone know that right off the bat that uh, this is w- what we've been talking about today. You'll be able to see something on uh, television or online watching the film. All right. So, tell me about the Harrisburg Giants.
6: Well, <laughs> there's a lot to tell, actually. Um, I'll try to <laughs> simplify it a bit for, for time. But, um, you know, they started at. Uh, you know, like you said, like they were very prominent in the 1920s. Um, there were a lot of Hall of Famers that played for them, like Oscar Charleston and uh, many players who should be in the Hall of Fame, like Rapp Dixon and John Beckwith. Um, uh, uh, Negro League historians think that it might possibly have been the, the greatest outfield of all time in the 1920s. Um they went on to in the 1950s to become the first team in the eastern Negro League to integrate white players on their team so um yeah there's a there's a lot that that, that team did when so. you
1: say the greatest outfield of all time you're talking about including even major league baseball
6: yeah because basically you know it's rare to, to have three great top flight outfielders on a baseball team period even in major league baseball usually have one or two uh, like great outfielders but you don't have like all three all three were like top flight players from the stats that we know i mean like they were dominating the the negro leagues at the time and their play on in the outfield and oscar charleston of course legendary hall of famer but rap dixon was also a, a uh, a great outfielder and Oscar Charleston said that, uh, rap Dixon was the greatest outfielder he ever saw. And I have, I've actually seen newspaper clippings that say like he had like the greatest arm or he had like the, 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 you know, would make these amazing catches and things. And Fats Jenkins was also a great player. He's in the basketball hall of fame, but he really should be in, in the, uh, in the, uh, pro baseball hall of fame as well because he's just he was phenomenal everything i read and all the stories about him is that he was just so fast and uh he was like a leadoff hitter and you know uh there they were great players in the giants it's just it's tragic that um they were not honored properly um and it took so long until the negro leagues were actually negro league players were going into the hall of fame in the 70s and um the last time they went in was uh, 2006. So we're trying to get another movement to, to get them in the Hall of Fame, and uh, especially uh, Rap Dixon, who I'm currently making a film on.
1: So, where did the Harrisburg Giants play?
6: Well, on the island. <laughs> I mean they they did play other places there's like a there's a place called the West End Grounds that they played um and uh, various times but they they predominantly played on the island okay, over there. So,
1: so, I mean is it the same layout of the baseball field with that uh, where the field is now for yeah. the Harrisburg Senators? Yeah, that
6: Island Park has been there since
1: 1890. Okay. So uh how long now you mentioned they started 1922 went to 1954 well
6: actually i I should say they the team actually started in 1890 okay yeah but they were very that incarnation of the team that you're talking about in like 22 that was whenever they went to the eastern colored league and they became like a major league kind of negro league team at that time that's when colonel struthers who started the team um he was able to get a lot of money and acquire like these great players like Rapp Dixon and Fats Jenkins and Oscar Charleston. and. Uh,
1: so you mentioned that that outfield may have been the greatest of all time. What about the team success? Was the team good?
6: Yeah, they were really good. Um, apparently they, they finished uh, second, like perennially throughout the 1920s. But it's interesting because I actually found a newspaper article that said that I think it was 1926 that they finished second because they, they had no field. They had to forfeit their games. Um, for some reason, they didn't have access to the island park, so they had to forfeit their games. So it's like I feel like if maybe given the opportunity, they could have been, <laughs> they could have won, yeah, won the championship that year. You don't
1: hear stories of too many teams that finished second because they had to forfeit games because they didn't have a field to play on. So I don't know whether in the course of the film you examine this or not, but uh, – uh, we know that uh, many Negro league, league teams, they had a lot of respect amongst a lot of pro baseball players and uh, some of the hierarchy of Major League Baseball, it was just that uh, they wouldn't allow black players to play in the, in the Major Leagues. But did the Harrisburg Giants experience any kind of particular discrimination, or how were they treated over the years?
6: Well, I, I had the privilege to interview uh, many of the surviving uh, Giants players for my film, and uh, Jim Weeden, who who who's in my film, who I had a chance to interview, he he described going down south, like going to Alabama, and they like pull down the curtains, and it, it's like he couldn't, like you weren't even a person. If it's like
1: who, who pulled down the curtains?
6: Oh, uh, well, that's uh, that was his phrasing, but basically, like uh, oh, white okay. white people in in, in Alabama would would basically kind of shut them out. Basically, it's like things that we take for granted like, you know, eating and, you know, sleeping somewhere. It's like they couldn't get a get a meal. They were, you know, it was segregated or or they couldn't. Go and and get a hotel room to stay, you know. And they were always on the road, so this was always a problem because there, there was so little money in the Negro Leagues at the time. So they're always on the road, and and these simple things that you know we take for granted or whatever, they faced all the time, and they were very courageous. And,
1: I I didn't realize there were a whole lot of black teams in the uh, in the South. I mean, I would see.
6: If well, I, I, yeah, there there were, and but the the Giants like they would travel. down down there right and stuff to play them and everything yeah so it was uh there were there were quite a number of teams down there so in
1: 1947 jackie robinson become becomes the first african-american player to play in the major leagues and uh after that uh, there were others that came uh, ever so slowly i mean it took took to 1957 before the phillies actually had uh, a black player but uh you know that was and a lot of people who look at uh, the history of negro league baseball and even though it was a glorious history as far as the players go the talent of the players that after Jackie Robinson integrated the major leagues that was kind of the death knell for negro league baseball but yet the giants continued until 1954 and actually integrated a white player how did that happen
6: several white players how absolutely. did that happen well <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting in 1954 you know a time of, of segregation well i mean brown v board just happened and they apparently ed Norick, bruno um many others um who if you watch my film you'll know who these people are but um they went down there and they just they decided to try out you know like people were saying like well why are you trying out for the negro leagues and, and it's like no well it's a, it's They thought it was high-caliber baseball, and it was. It was a higher-caliber baseball than what was being offered that they could play at the time. And they said, you know, oh, we're going to go down there and try out. And uh, the owner of the team, uh, Rich Felton, said, you know, as long as you can play baseball, you can play. And and that's that's what you know the team said that I mean that that was the, kind of the 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 creed of everybody was that it was this beautiful moment where they like race didn't matter that that they came together and it was this beautiful moment of racial harmony harmony for the love of baseball and I think that that's really kind of the take home uh, message of the of the that team is that it's like wow it's like you have this thing. and then and then they would win the championship that year so it was, how, many,
1: how many white players did
6: they have in '54? Ah I I I don't know exactly probably like 4 or 5 I believe
1: out of a team of how many mm,
6: probably a dozen or so yeah probably about probably about that yeah
1: <laughs> and it was the first and it was the first negro league team that actually had white players
6: yes yeah mm. uh, in in the in the eastern negro league yes
1: okay so i, I want to thank you uh scott ors for, for being with us today and again give you the opportunity uh this is fascinating again the information if someone wants to see your film
6: Oh um, well, I mean, it just aired uh, at 8 a.m. today, but it will be on at at 11 a.m. on uh, Shorts TV, which is a cable channel on uh, Directv, Google Fiber, AT and T, uh, and CenturyLink Prism. So, yeah, if if you get a chance, you know, it will also be on at on the uh, 16th of uh, December on Saturday at the same times, 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. So, set your DVRs and uh, please tune in.
1: Uh, There Were Giants. Uh, Scott Orris is the director of the film. Thank you very much for being with us today.
6: Well, thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure.
1: Last Wednesday... Want to mention this? uh, Last Wednesday, Congressman Lloyd Smucker of uh, Lancaster County appeared on Smart Talk uh, for just over ten minutes. Now, due to a communications error on our part, I was under the impression that Congressman Smucker had only agreed to appear on Smart Talk for ten minutes. When in fact, the ten minutes was at our suggestion because of a tight schedule. We regret the miscommunication and hope to have Congressman Smucker on the program in the future for a longer period of time so that we can go more in depth. On the issues. Tomorrow's program, we talk about books for holiday giving.
0: Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com.